Okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start with questions from this morning's message. Then we'll go to questions, any lingering questions from our series on membership. And then we'll go to, where is it? The yellow handout, which is not here apparently. Where did it go? Had a yellow handout. Ah, it's under my paper. Here it is. So, first, questions from Zechariah. Yes. Yes. Next question. <laughs> I, I can do that. Will I? Will I? Oh, will I? Okay, yes. Yes. Ah, ha, ha. Okay. Um, uh, briefly, yes. You go to Revelation 16. The events of Zechariah 12, because 12 really is focusing, 12, even the final burden really only focuses on two events. It focuses on the Battle of Armageddon, and it focuses on the setting up of the kingdom, the return of Christ to battle the, the, the nations of the world, and then the setting up of the kingdom. Revelation gives the most detailed walkthrough. It's also some of the most complicated stuff, so I will just briefly, but Revelation 16, in verse, let me get my little verse sheet. I got it written down over here. Um, Revelation 16, 16. Okay. So we're at the bowls of wrath. And um, pick it up in verse 15. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So that assembling of the nations in Revelation 16, 16 is exactly what... Zechariah 12 deals with. Um, So that would be the fitting into the book of Revelation. So prior to that would be the rapture. Prior to that would be the beginning of the Great Tribulation. Um, The church has already been removed. This is the final moment. Remember, the Antichrist makes a peace treaty and makes everyone get along. And then after three and a half years, he breaks it. And that's when the persecution on Jerusalem and Israel begins. And this is the climax of that. I mean, 14 even lets us know that the walls are breached. The women are raped. The property is taken. The people are taken in exile, half the city. And it's really only at that point, at the right moment, that Christ returns and begins to battle them. Um, and that greater detail is given in chapter 14. So Zechariah 12 is mainly just saying, here's what's going to happen. The nation is going to arrive. They're going to get confounded. They're going to get cursed. They're going to get devoured. I'm going to destroy them. And that's the amount of detail that Zechariah 12 gives. 14 will fill in more. Revelation fills in even more. But yeah, Revelation 16, 16. And, and if you go down into 19, he even picks up the cup of staggering reference. Revelation 16, 19. The great city was split into three parts. That's that dividing, splitting thing that takes place in Zechariah 14. And so there was a great earth, great, the great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, the river mountain. I mean, so this is that same place and time. So Revelation 16, 16, 19, that's when the nations gather on Israel. That's where Zechariah is at. Any other, any other questions on, the, on this?
going once. The sermon. Will you please stop saying my son's name? Apparently, every time I'd say Judah, Meredith's son's name is Judah. He'd be like, what? <laughs> okay. Yes, yes, Meredith, what's your... Mm-hmm. Yep. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, yeah. Let's go to let's go to um, let's go to First John one. And and there's a sense in which God does bless an unrepentant people. He blesses them by disciplining them. I mean, anything that brings us to faith is a good thing, right? So when I say blessed in this context, I mean like the defending, the 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 the, the comforting, the strengthening, the fighting for. In a sense, even discipline, even the the discipline Israel received in the Babylonian exile was meant for their good as to bring them back. So there's a sense in which even that's a blessing. So I mean blessing in a less than absolute sense, if you get what I'm saying. You with me? Okay, 1 John 1. Um, here's, here's what I mean. And uh, two, two summers ago or one summer ago, was it one year ago or two years ago, we did that series on sin and sanctification. I think that was last summer. Two? One? The opening message is from 1 John 1, and I'll sort of recap a little bit what was going on there, but here's what I mean. Let's go to 1 John 1, um, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So if... If I think that I'm in fellowship with God and I'm enjoying his favor and his blessing and, and I'm having communion with him, but what I'm doing is actually walking in darkness, I'm self-deceived and I'm a liar. That, that's what I mean. We're like, no, you, you're not getting God's blessing when you're walking in darkness. No, he's not. You shouldn't expect him to keep his promises to you while you're walking in darkness. Except the promises of discipline and correction. Well, give me some other blessings. Like just and the unjust. Sure. sure. And that's, okay. So when I say blessings here, yes, yes. Let me, let me sub-qualify then, sub-qualify. There's blessings of discipline that come upon the unrepentant. <laughs> Those come. There's general grace given to all people. He causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Sure. Specifically, as you're looking to his promises in Scripture, specifically as you're looking for him to keep those promises, if you ask anything in my name, I'll give it to you. As you're looking to those things, as I will vindicate you. Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you at the appropriate time. Make way for the wrath of God. Don't get angry. He'll fight your battles for you. He'll defend you. As my soul thirsts for the living God, God will come and comfort me. I'm looking for God's comfort and strength. All those blessings are, are conditional upon us in fellowship with him. That, that's what I'm saying. that make more sense? Yes, Greg. Certainly not. <laughs> when you phrase the question that way, certainly not. No, go, go, go. No. No, 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 no. 
Um, once, once we are his sheep, he will shepherd us and discipline us, but he will not ever cast us off. No one, according to John 10, slips through his fingers. So what did I say here? I said, the Lord will only bless and defend a repentant and believing people. In, in the context of like in this life, yeah, I mean that. If, if you want to press that super hard, fair enough, I need to qualify that. But um, in 1 John 1, and your question of, and, and here's one of the things, by the way, Meredith, that I find very helpful it's not like the Catholic idea of tit-for-tat, you commit sin A, and until you confess sin A, you're not good. Look what he goes on to say. So if we, if we walk in darkness, if we are walking in darkness, we don't have fellowship with God. Moreover, we don't have fellowship with each other. Verse 7, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If, and then here's where, and I don't, I don't like pulling out Greek magic tricks left and right, but literally, if we are confessing our sins, present active indicative verb, meaning it's a progressive, ongoing action. If we are habitually confessing sin as we see it, if we are confessing our sins, he is faithful and just, not just to forgive us the sins we confess, but to give us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the confidence we can take is if we are a people who, when the Spirit shows us our sin, if it is our habit and our pattern, we are confessing it. All the other sins you're not even aware you committed are getting cleansed too. So it's not like this notion of, I, I, I lied four times yesterday. I only asked for forgiveness for three of those. Maybe, maybe that other thing I said was a lie. I don't know. <clears throat> and you're sort of beating yourself up because you don't want to be out of fellowship with God. Look, as long as you're dealing with the things God is bringing to you, he's cleansing you from everything in, in the relational walking in light sort of way. This is the equivalent of Jesus talking about the foot cleaning. He wants to w- wash the disciples' feet and Peter initially puts his foot in his mouth and says, oh, you can't wash my feet. And if Jesus says, well, then you have no part of me. And then Peter goes to the other extreme, well, give me a whole bath. And Jesus says, no, no, you're already clean. You need a foot washing. At our salvation, we were cleansed. Day by day, we get dirt on our feet, and we need to continually confess our sins to get that cleansing, which is relational forgiveness. Uh, maybe a good example would be, there's, there's nothing my children are going to do that will break our relationship. I'm going to be their dad. I'm going to love them. There's plenty of things they can do that will break my pleasure in our relationship, right? And until that gets dealt with, there is some discord in our relationship. They're still my kids, but they might need to get disciplined, right? And there are other times when we're all at peace and we are delighting in our fellowship together. You know what I mean? That's, it's a familial, a family confession. It's family discipline. We never risk facing God as the great judge of the universe. We do deal still with God, a judging father who disciplines his kids. That's Hebrews 12. Yes, Elsa. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. This is the distinction between justification and sanctification. Justification is what happens um, when you leave work for a couple weeks and you, it's just a vacation. Okay. All right. Um, okay. The ghost of Pastor Gary lingers. Um, and <laughs> hey, I sat under him for five years and I learned when the student is fully taught, he'll be like the teacher. Um, Hey, Jesus said that? Hey, okay. Um, 
sorry. Here's, here's the key concept. Bible scholars, theologians use some terms for precision. Justification, which is a term Paul uses, justification is our, our salvation is spoken of in three senses. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. The Scripture is comfortable using all three of those. And when it speaks past, present, and future, it's speaking about different aspects of our salvation. Um, the part of our salvation we're probably most familiar with is justification. Justification is an event. It happens at a point in time. It doesn't repeat. It doesn't happen over and over again. It's when we go from death to life, when we go from hostility with God to peace with God, it's when we go from aliens and strangers to sons and daughters, it's when we go from not being forgiven to being forgiven. It isn't a process, it doesn't take place over a long span of time, it is a point in time, it is justification by faith. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we are having peace with God period, full stop. Nothing I can do, nothing you can do can erode that, can degrade that, can undo that. But Philippians 2 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now that's just that ongoing progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification is a process. Progressive sanctification, we're contributing to it. It's it's, it's like a mouse contributing. The joke is, you know, the mouse and the elephant walk across this bridge and it shakes and when they get done, the mouse said, we sure shakes that bridge. You know, but Paul says it. Therefore, get to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it's God who's at work within you, both the will and the do according to his good pleasure. So even in sanctification, it's not wholly on me. But I, I do participate in sanctification. And if I don't participate in sanctification, it's, it's not going to happen. I, I must participate in sanctification. I must get to work. We can't be Keswicks who sit back and sort of let go and let God and just sort of you know coast and God will take care of it all. Paul says, get to work. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And so they're, they're, we walk in the light and we're growing and we step out of the light and we, we repent and we get back in. And, and that's the Christian life. And that's being saved being saved. This is what the gospel offers as well. And then finally, um, the, the scriptures in Romans 13 will say things like, for our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And Jesus coming to rescue us from this sinful, damned world, this groaning world, the pain, the suffering, sickness, disease, and not being fully present with him. I mean, we have some fellowship with him, but it's like seeing through a glass dimly. Then we'll see face to face. Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 5, came to bring us to God. That, the Bible will refer to that as salvation. That's glorification. So we've got justification, sanctification, and glorification, and all of which are packaged in the gospel. The gospel offers all three of those. Um, the gospel is, would you like to be forgiven and have peace with God? Would you like to have an ongoing um, freedom from slavery to sin so that you can grow in holiness and obedience? And would you like to ultimately go and be with God, conformed fully to the image of his son? That, that's what the gospel offers. Um, and so, yeah, we want to be careful. We don't confuse things because if you want, if you make justification a process or justification is something I have to do, I have to put in and chip in my little piece. You know, Jesus did a lot from the cross, and if you just do a little bit, you'll be okay. You warp the gospel. The gospel is, is the finished work of Christ. We receive it by faith. Sanctification, we are participating in. Sanctification, we are working. We are, as the Puritans would talk about, holy sweat. Um, it's work. You're putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Um, and 
glorification is, is another instantaneous thing that we don't really have a whole lot to do with. It's done to us. And the Bible can refer to all three of those as salvation. Um, and it's all part of what the gospel offers. Any, any questions on that? Yeah, there's no, there's no, um, we can't say these things too many times, be clear on this too often. Um, yes? Glorification in one sentence. Glorification is when we are fully conformed to the image of Christ, when the curse is removed, and we are no longer struggling with sin, in the presence of sin, and suffering from sin. That's glorification. Um, or if you want nice alliterated, alliterated fashion, justification, we are saved from the penalty of sin. Sanctification, we are increasingly saved from the power of sin. And glorification, we are saved from the presence of sin. Isn't that nice and easy to remember? Snappy. Do you like my sermon title? You know, the, the Declaration, Conflagration, Intervention. Intervention doesn't really fit, does it? It's kind of the odd man out, but it's okay. Um, devastation, salvation, yeah. Yes. Okay, the question is, um, if, if, if things are coming to mind, sins committed even years, decades ago, um, is that something God might do, or is that something Satan might do? Let me um, answer that by saying, I think how we respond to that will evidence its source. I, I think that it's entirely possible that God might bring to mind things done wrong years ago, uh, because we've never dealt with it, we've never confessed it to him. Or maybe there's wrongs that need to be righted. I remember that I stole some money five years ago and I need to pay it back. Now, if the fruit is me turning to God and saying, hey, I'm sorry, please forgive me, and my relationship with him gets better, I'm walking more in the light, that sounds like something God does. If the fruit is I'm restoring a relationship with somebody, I remember somebody I wronged years ago, um, that's good. If the fruit is I just beat myself over with my head and, and just feel terrible, that's, that's not from where... So I would just judge it by what are we doing. I remember I was at Word of Life Bible Institute. I'd been a Christian for two, three years. And one day, I was giving my testimony to somebody, and I was talking about some of the terrible stuff I did as an unbeliever. And um, I confessed to um, rip, rip, basically participating in what amounted to credit card fraud. Um, a friend of mine had a credit card, and and he went and maxed it out, and and then he reported it stolen, and basically made a thousand dollars out of it. And I helped him, and I participated in this. And the guy I was telling that to said, "So, did you ever call them up and make that right?" No. And that sat on me for a couple of days, and I remember just trembling. I picked up the phone and called the Discover card, and just. Yeah, this happened back when I was at UNH, and, and the lady was not nice to me. Like you'd hope they'd be like, "Oh, that's so sweet." The only reason I didn't get in any real trouble is she, I didn't have enough information. I had my friend's name, but I didn't know his social security number. I didn't know his current address. I didn't know where he was at. She couldn't figure out what the account was. But no, I absolutely think that was from God. Should I try to right wrongs? Yes, I should. You know, um, did it teach me the fear of the Lord? <laughs> Yes, it did. <laughs> yes, it did. Um, and, and I remember at another point, um, the Lord 
had me cross paths with somebody I had not honored and I had not treated with respect and kindness years before, and I had an opportunity to seek their forgiveness, and that was a great blessing. So I don't have a view that just because it happened a few years ago, oh, don't worry about it. On the other hand, um, I don't think we should, I think we can get so caught up in a morbid introspection. Perhaps there's some, I'm going to trust God's going to bring to mind what I need to know. Uh, go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. And the psalm opens and closes with something very similar, but slightly different. Um, It starts with a declaration of fact. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. It ends after the psalmist considers the character of God, his omniscience, his sovereignty, his omnipresence. There's nowhere you can go. It ends with the psalmist inviting this searching. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I think that's always a great prayer to pray. Lord, is there something in my life you want me to deal with? Is there something in my life you want me to confess and get right with you on? Um, that's a great prayer. But I wouldn't sit around and spend eight hours on that. I'd, I'd say it's, that's a good prayer to pray periodically, especially if you sense in your heart and your spirit, I don't know, feeling kind of guilty. But there's also another word to that, and that's back in 1 John. Go to 1 John, I think it's 2. Where is it? Zeb, can you look up if our hearts condemn us? 1 John, this is the phrase if our hearts condemn us. It's not underlined in mine, which means I have to find it somehow. Maybe it's 3 or 4. Definitely 1 through 5 somewhere. Um, uh, 321. 321, okay. Because there's, there's, there's the other half. So on the one side, we have a biblical pattern and model from the Psalms. Hey, at any point, stop and say, hey, God, search my heart. Would you show me if there's something displeasing to you? Would you show me something you want me to deal with? I think those are prayers God always answers. I, I, there's no, and I, and I want to be clear on this, there is not one example in Scripture I've ever seen where a human being wants to honor God, wants to please God, and the failure is in communication, as if like God's going to send down the tea leaves or he's going to send down the signs and you misread them. It just doesn't happen. So if, you're, if your heart wants, like, God, if there's something you want me to confess, if there's something you want me to give up, if there's something you want me to deal with, show me. I don't think God's ever in heaven. And does God want us to do that? Is that God's desire too? It's certainly not going to be like, oh, I told you, but you didn't get it. It just doesn't happen. And so... This, these, are, these are the types of prayers I'm pretty confident God always answers um, because we know it's his will that we be sanctified. First Thessalonians 4, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Hey, God, I want to please you. Is there something I'm displeasing you? I mean, what parent has ever said that to their kid? Dad, um, I, I think I was naughty, but I'm not sure what to do. If you have to ask, I'm not going to tell you. Now, I don't think God does that. Um, so First John 3, what? 19? Uh, 321. 321. Let's go back to 19. By this we know that we are of the truth, and we reassure our heart before him. So here the concept is, is doubts, fears, anxieties, possibly even over whether we know him at all, whether we're Christians. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, 
He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. So on the other side, there's this, look, even if your heart still condemns you, even if like, look, I've already confessed that. I've confessed that five times, and I'm still feeling bad about it. There's got to be a time you say, okay, heart, shut up. God's accepted me. And move on. But the danger is, of course, doing that too lightly on the one hand. You actually haven't dealt with it. You actually haven't rectified it. And you say, I'm forgiven. Isn't that wonderful? And no, Psalm 139 says, no, 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 no. It's totally good and right to ask God, God, is there something in my heart I need to deal with? On the other side, there's this sort of morbid, I, what you're eventually saying is, I know God's forgiven me, but I can't forgive me. I mean, let me tell you something. You can't forgive yourself. It's impossible. You can't. You're not the, you're not the one wronged. You're not the one who is, is, whose forgiveness you need. You need the offended party's forgiveness, which is God, or perhaps your neighbor. Um, and you also run the risk then of having a higher standard than God, because what you're saying in effect is, I know that God, the righteous judge, has acquitted me and pronounced me sinless and, and, and innocent. I know that his court and his standard has been met, but it's sadly, I have a higher standard than God, and I require a little bit more than God does. And so, yes, Jesus' death on the cross might be sufficient for God's court and his standard, but not for mine. Now, none of us, I think, would dare to say that, Understand when we, I know Jesus has forgiven me, but I still feel that's what we're doing. We are having our own little court, and it's got a higher, stricter standard. It is a more righteous standard than God's. That's what we're doing. Zeb, you look like you're going to say something to that? No. He's playing with his beard. Okay. Um, <laughs> any, other, any other questions or thoughts on this? This is all good stuff. All good stuff. Okay. Any other questions on Zechariah in general? I'm about to close that door. Two A's blank global. A global threat arises against Israel. Existential. Excellent, excellent. That was a good guess. I like that. I like that. Any other, any other questions from Zechariah? Okay. Okay. Any other holdover questions from the six-week thing on membership that we did? We'll, we'll go there now. Who needs one of these yellow things, then? We'll go to this. Could you take one of these and hand it out as well? Thank you. This is the exact same sheet we've had for like a month. But if you need one, Ryan Willoughby is your man. I believe we're on point three under the Holy Spirit superintended the writings of Scripture. Did we cover that fully or just crack that? Okay. 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 Are we going to have enough here? Are we going to make it? Ryan, turn around. You missed Linda Archer. How dare you? (laughs) 
Okay. We have exactly enough handouts. This is amazing. Okay. If anyone else comes in, share. Um, okay. We are on the page that starts with point number three, the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant. By way of review, we're dealing with the third person of the Trinity. We first established the Spirit is a person. It's not some impersonal force. He is a person. He has emotions. He has a mind. He has a will. Next, we established the Spirit is God. He's equated with God. He possesses the attributes of God. And now, having established the personhood of the Holy Spirit, the deity of the Holy Spirit, we want to know, how does he function? Theologians talk about the economic trinity. And by economic, we're talking about function. What do they do? It seems the Father is the one who planned salvation. The Father was the one who instituted it and sent the Son. The Son in the Old Covenant we saw was the angel of the Lord, the intermediary between God and man even then, the one who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And the Holy Spirit under the covenants of God has has functioned and done different forms of ministry. So we saw first the Holy Spirit was involved in creation. The Holy Spirit was active in um, in Genesis 1-2. Now we're down to this Holy Spirit superintended the writings of Scripture. We go to First Peter, Second Peter 1 21. Peter is, is, is getting ready to die, and he uh, is commending to them the trustworthiness of Scripture, even against so-called visions, so-called um, experiences people have. Verse 19, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from anyone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That word for carried along is the same word of a ship being driven. And one of the things we understand in our doctrine of the inspiration of Scripture is that the Holy Spirit superintends the writing of Scripture in a way that does not negate the personality, does not negate the, the mind of the human author. So when Paul says things like, I long to see you, he truly longs to see them. Paul uses his vocabulary. Luke uses his vocabulary. The personalities of the authors show through. And yet, so no violence is done to them. The scripture wasn't done like automatic writing where the eyes roll on the back of the head. Or, and it wasn't like God was, okay, you just imagine the apostle Paul wants to, you know, he's had a long day, he wants to go to bed. God says to him, Paul, I've got some work for you. Okay, okay. Get out a pen and paper, Paul. Okay, okay. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. I, Paul, I, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians. That's not how Scripture was written. Um, so this is a great word for that. The Spirit blew them along. The wind carries a boat. Um, and yet Peter makes it clear the Scriptures are not just the product of man's will. No one wrote anything, but the holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Scripture writers were um, inspired, were um, carried along by the Spirit. That's a small blank, though, isn't it? 
I, I don't have my master code. My master code's um, back in my office, but I'll figure it out. We'll, we'll muddle along. Um, let's go to Ezekiel 2, 2. The Holy Spirit superintended the writing of Scripture. Ezekiel um, is probably one of the strangest prophets. He has a bizarre ministry. Lies on his side for a year, eats his food cooked off of dung. It, weird, buries his underwear and digs him back up. Ezekiel's got a strange ministry. And in Ezekiel 2.2, let's start in 2.1. Ezekiel's call to ministry. And he said to me, Son of man, stand on your feet and I will speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered into me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me and he said to me, Son of man, I send you to the people of Israel, to a nation of rebels who have rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. Their descendants are also impudent and stubborn. I send you to them, and you shall surely say to them, Thus says the Lord God, and whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, do not be afraid of them, nor afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns are with you, and sit and you sit on scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor dismayed at their looks, for they are a rebellious house, and you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. God's Spirit enters into Zechariah and enables him to speak God's word. God's prophets spoke by the Holy Spirit. That's the point. So the Holy Spirit is, is, is superintendent on God's communicative acts to man. He superintends the written revelation, and he dwells in the prophets who speak for God, thus ensuring that their words are true. Go to 2 Samuel 23. Second Samuel twenty three one through two. These are the last words of David, the oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me; his word is in my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken; the Rock of Israel has said to me. When one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass sprout from the earth. David um, says, the Spirit of God speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. David wrote and spoke by the Holy Spirit. That's, that's the point. So what was the Holy Spirit doing during the Old Covenant, the times before the cross? He was intimately involved in creation. He was the member of the Trinity that oversaw 
the inspiration of the scriptures who came upon men of God. Um, now, one of the distinctions we want to make, we've got 10 minutes here, is the difference in the ministry. The reason why I'm talking about this is the Spirit's ministry under the Old Covenant and in the New Covenant is significantly different. Significantly different. And if you would turn, um, well, for the sake of time, the Spirit, here's the big point, here's the so what. Under the Old Covenant, the Spirit of God would selectively come upon various individuals. Sometimes they weren't even believers in Yahweh, like Balaam or Saul. Well, Saul's a debatable case. but um, And the types of words you see are the Spirit was in Joseph or came upon Othniel or filled Bezalel, um, who was a craftsman. But it, it's temporary, it's not permanent, and it's not for everyone. And so... This was done to enable surface, service. So, so go to Exodus 31, for example. Bezalel. The Lord said to Moses, verse 1, See, I have called you, I have called by name Bezalel, or Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. From the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting of stones for setting and in carrying wood to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a Ahaliab, son of Ahisamah, of the tribe of Dan. And I've given to all able men ability that they make all that I've commanded. So here the Holy Spirit comes upon an artisan and a craftsman to make the tools and the instruments for the tabernacle. Um, other examples are judges. The judges, the Spirit of God comes upon Samson, giving him great strength. Um, Spirit of God comes upon Saul, and he strips himself naked and prophesies in the gates. It's kind of strange. Um, but the, the point is this. The Holy Spirit did not come upon and indwell all of believers under the Old Covenant. What is normal and assumed for us is really supposed to be a remarkable upgrade, if you will. It's, it's one of the things that makes the New Covenant superior to the Old Covenant. Um, this was not permanent, nor was it a sure sign of a seal of salvation. In, in Judges 13, Samson lost the spirit. Go to, go to 1 Samuel 16, 14. How many of you, while we're turning there, how many of you guys are familiar with that song? Um, I think Steve Green wrote it. Great in me a clean heart. Oh, God, right. How's it go? Cast me not away from your presence, O Lord. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Well, that is the words of Psalm 51, but I've known plenty of people who get really confused over that. Are we in danger of losing the Holy Spirit? Well, the reason David penned that is he saw exactly that happen to Saul. 1 Samuel 16, 14. And as long as we understand what we're singing, I think it's great to sing that. We're singing Scripture. We'll get to that in a second. So 1 Samuel 16, 14. I'm in 14, 14, hold on. 15. 
16, 14. Okay. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and the harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And so David had seen the anointed king of Israel first receive the spirit and then lose the spirit. And he did, this happened because Saul had disobeyed the Lord. So when David grievously sins and disobeys God, what's one of the top priorities on this list? Oh, don't let that happen to me. Don't let that happen to me. Go to 2 Samuel, where God makes his covenant with David. He references this in 2 Samuel um, 7 or 8. The Vedic covenant. I should know this. 7. 2 Samuel 7, this is the Davidic covenant where God makes a covenant with David. We'll pick it up in the middle of verse 11. David has just tried to make a house for God, and God says, no, 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 I'll make a house for you. The play on words of a dynasty uh, as a house works both in Hebrew and English. The house of David, you know, the dynasty of David. See, I didn't say dynasty, Greg. It's a dynasty. Okay. Moreover, middle of verse 11, the Lord declares to you, the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, whom shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. I will build a house. He will build a house for my name. So this is most immediately talking about Solomon. We know it's not immediately talking about Jesus because we read, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father. He shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity. I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house, your kingdom, shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So David, before he had committed um, adultery, he prays, Lord, don't take your spirit from me. Now, that's one of the big differences under the Old Covenant. Um, David knew that the, the Spirit's indwelling was temporary, and it could be sinned away. Um, yes? No, that's Solomon. Your descendant, who will build a house for me. It's Solomon who built the temple. And we know Solomon strays and, and, and messes up and marries a thousand wives and concubines. What? Lord, well, read, read Song of Solomon. He was miserable. The Lord disciplined him. Absolutely. Um, the point is this. I'm going to establish your throne, and when your sons rebel, I will discipline them, but I won't end it. Because basically what happens with Saul is Saul messes up twice. First, he doesn't wait, and he offers a sacrifice instead of waiting for Samuel, and that's when he loses the dynasty. God says, I would have established your throne forever. So now Saul's dynasty is going to go one person, him, and then when he doesn't kill Agag and all the Amalekites and he spares the best animals and he makes the statue of himself, that's when he's rejected as king. So it's a one-two punch. First he loses the dynasty, then he loses the kingdom. And what God's telling David is, I will discipline your kids. And you read through the kings of, of Judah, he does discipline them. I won't end the line. I won't end the dynasty. It will continue. And this is the language Psalm 2 picks up, which is looking forward. I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's in nuccio, it's in principle here, but it's not fleshed out. This is going to play out one of two ways. Either David's going to have a son who's 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 going to have a son, world without end, amen, 
or eventually we're going to have a different son who doesn't die. Now, that's not fully here, but there's enough of it there that Psalm 2 can use the exact same language. The Lord said to me, today you are my son, I am your father, picking up this language of the Davidic covenant, and this is the one whose rule will be from sea to sea. Kiss the son lest he become angry and you perish in the way. Yeah, Psalm 2 takes this and adds steroids to it. I mean, just just triples in size. And Psalm 2 also reveals this son is also the Messiah, is also the king. And so those titles come together in Psalm 2. So Psalm 2 takes 2 Samuel 7 and just develops it. Um, but yeah, anyway, that doesn't have a lot to do with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Okay, um, I'm going to try to finish this page in just one minute. Um, so that's the Holy Spirit's ministry under the Old Covenant. Finally, the final um, act we're going to look at under the Old Covenant is the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and empowered him for ministry. Jesus emptied himself. Even though he had the power of God, even though he had the attributes of God, he didn't function in them independently in his life. But the Spirit comes upon him. It was prophesied in Isaiah 11, Behold, the Spirit of God will come upon him, the Spirit of wisdom, the Spirit of... It goes through. And then at his baptism, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove. There are no recorded miracles of Jesus prior to his baptism. Um... After his baptism is when Jesus begins working miracles. And Luke says he went out in the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, the Spirit empowered also the conception of Jesus. And according to 1 Peter 3.18, Jesus was raised by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that gets us to the cross. Next week we'll pick up and we'll start looking at the new covenant ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is just a brief overview of the Spirit's work and activity under the Old Covenant. He was involved in creation, he superintended the writing of scriptures, and he selectively and temporarily came upon individuals, and he was responsible for Jesus' conception, he empowered him for ministry, and he raised him from the dead. Okay? So we'll pick up next week, same bat time, same bat channel, and uh, we'll see you then. God bless.